Well, good morning again. Please turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. Last week we begun the Gospel of Mark with the first verse. We won't take it one verse at a time the whole way. In fact, today we're going to be looking at verses 2 through 8. Since we're so close to the beginning, I'll go ahead and start with the first verse again, and we'll read through to the end of the section. So, the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 1. In the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, how marvelous are your works. We've heard about them from the Psalms, from Romans. We've sung about your works in this world. And we bless your name. Even the snow that falls and becomes work for us also declares your glory and your beauty. Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning as we look at the ministry of John the Baptist I pray that we would heed his call to look to one who is mightier than even he was. Lord, I pray that this morning you would give us eyes of faith to see your son. That you would give us hearts that are filled with hope to look to that city that we are going to where righteousness will dwell forever. And where we, clothed in the righteousness of your Son, Jesus, will dwell forever with you. Help us this morning, I pray. I do pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, even as we sing. Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. suppose you probably can all relate to a time or two, or many, of getting lost over the years. Uh, I was reminded... uh, a time that I got myself lost. We were driving through Chicago on the way back to the cities, and uh, it was, as you can imagine, there was traffic. Uh, in fact, there's traffic in Chicago all the time. I went to church in Chicago on a Sunday morning, and there was traffic. I don't know that everybody was going to church, but there was certainly traffic. Um, there can be traffic at night. Anyways, you get the point. Uh, we weren't going anywhere, and uh, the map quest said, If we get off the highway, it would save us two minutes. I thought, 
I'm in a mood to save two minutes right now. Let's get off the highway and see what we can do. I can see Kevin. He's just, he's just turning back there. You know, he lived in Chicago. He knows. <laughs> so, so I get off the highway. And, uh, and it was worse. Uh, it was bad. I mean, it, it was a mess. It took us so long just to get back to the highway. Uh, not a good idea. Uh, I think we can all relate to the idea of getting lost one way or another. And the reality of the human story is that we're all lost. All of us have gotten off the right road. And in fact, the Bible teaches us that ever since Genesis chapter 3, we don't even start on the right road. We are lost to begin with. And throughout the Bible, we, we find a message that rather than just plowing on and going forward according to our own wisdom and our own abilities and our own righteousness, the call for us is to stop. We've got to come to a halt. And we need somebody else to take us to the right road. Our natural pride doesn't want to accept that. We're afraid. We don't want to trust in somebody else. Uh, we want to keep doing it our way. Uh, but the word uh, from the Bible for us that describes what we need to do in light of our self-will and in light of our sin is we need to repent. All people must repent before God. And as we think about this in light of our text today, the, the main call for us is that every human being must repent and look to Jesus. Now that's essentially Mark's message that we'll see here. Every human being must repent and look to Jesus. And we're going to see that as we look first at John the man, and next we'll look at John the preacher. We'll look at who John was, and we'll look at the message that he communicated. And through that, I think we'll see that. So let's look first at John the man. As I've just read about here, maybe you can get the sense that John the Baptist was a man that stood out. Not just in the way he looked, but in what he said. He was not afraid to rock the boat. In fact, John carried himself as an Old Testament prophet. And not just a general prophet or any sort of prophet, but he really carried himself as a particular prophet. We can see that. You notice here he ate locusts and honey. He, uh, he clothed himself in camel's hair and he, he wore a leather belt. Well, it's interesting, not so much on the dietary side of it, but his, his clothing in Second Kings, the beginning of the book. Second Kings chapter 1, uh, there are messengers that are, uh, Elijah sends a message, messengers are going to be sent to him. Uh, and one of these messengers are describing to Ahaziah who has spoken. And they answered him, uh, he, speaking of this man, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. So this was Elijah's, uh, his, his garments. He, he wore animal's hair and he wore a leather belt. Th those are details that Mark brings out for us, I don't think by accident. I think he's linking back there, but the case gets much stronger than that. Uh, there's many things in the gospel here that will point us in that direction. But another thing, um, John the Baptist, he ministered in many of the same areas that Elijah did. 
First uh, Kings 17, 1-5 describes Elijah as ministering in Gilead and east of the Jordan River. Well, John the Baptist ministered in some of those same areas. We see him here at the River Jordan, um, and many suggest that he was probably on the northern side of the Jordan River, which is close to the Sea of Galilee. If you remember your geography of Israel, you've got the Sea of Galilee that's at the north, then the Jordan River goes from that sea down to the Dead Sea, where there aren't any fish. Uh, if you're on the shore of the Dead Sea, you're at the lowest point on the planet that you can go on foot without getting wet. Uh, that the Jordan River connects those two, and John ministered probably on the northern side of it towards Galilee, and Elijah as well. He, his home base was around that area. He ministered in that area. So he's similar in his garments and in his dress uh, and in his area of work. But even within Mark's gospel, it gets clearer that John, when we think of John the Baptist, we should be seeing him as pointing to Elijah here in his work. Uh, Mark 9.13, Jesus just says it straight out in this gospel later on. He says, But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Now, this is after John the Baptist has been beheaded. Uh, there, he's referring to John the Baptist. Um, in Matthew... Matthew makes that link very clearly as well. Matthew 11, 13 to 14. Jesus says, For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So again, Jesus is saying John is Elijah. Uh, he's a fulfillment of that. Uh, and if all of that weren't enough, uh, in our passage here, we see that in the the quotations that Mark has. Mark cites the Old Testament and uh, he speaks of this as speaking of John. This is referring to John the Baptist. Now I'll just note here this quotation in verses 2 to 3. It's actually from two different parts of the Old Testament. Verse 2 is coming out of Malachi chapter 3 and verse 3 is coming out of Isaiah chapter 40. But he refers to them as just Isaiah the prophet. I think what he's doing there is he's just referring to the prophet who's more well-known. Isaiah, uh, a very large text, very well-known. Isaiah is quoted all over the New Testament. And I think for familiarity, he's just referring to Isaiah. He's not mentioning Malachi. But if you look it up, this comes. these two passages are coming from Malachi and from Isaiah. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, this is just a few books back in the Bible. This is the end of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So here's one who's going to prepare a way. Uh, and... Mark is telling us that that is John the Baptist, who's here preparing the way of the Lord. And later in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, he says, Behold, I send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Okay, there's Elijah again. We're, we're seeing this again and again. I want to point out as well in Isaiah chapter 40, uh, in verse 3, 
This is where he's saying then, uh, the, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. So what is this messenger doing? He is declaring, uh, he's, he's preparing the way of the Lord. And in Isaiah, Lord there is capital L-O-R-D, speaking of Yahweh. This messenger is coming to prepare the way for God to come and reveal his glory. And that's what John is doing. And as we see that then here in Mark's gospel, John is preparing the way for the Lord Jesus. John has already tipped us off to that, uh, that this is the Son of God who he is speaking of here. So in this, as we see these prophecies, that tells us a lot about who John is, that he's coming as, as Elijah in the New Testament. Uh, but it tells us a lot about who Jesus is too. It's speaking to his identity. That's a bit for us about John the man, who he was, and, and what that meant for his ministry. Uh, let's look now and turn and consider John the preacher. Let's consider the message that he preached as he went out to the Jordan River to baptize. What was the message that John brought I think there's two main things we see in this passage. He preached repentance. And he prophesied about the coming Lord. So he preached repentance and he pointed to Jesus. I want to read verse five and 4 and 5 again. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. It says here that he preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John here is calling people from all walks of life to repent of their sin. And upon repenting of their sin and confessing it, he baptized them. And it says here that his baptism was a baptism of repentance. Now, these baptismal waters in the Jordan River as it's flowing, I think part of that is it's to be a picture of the sins that are washed away. Now, baptism doesn't, our water baptisms don't actually wash our sins away, but I think that there's something here of a, a picture to that effect. Uh, and uh, we see that uh, we are forgiven by faith in the Savior. That's what removes our sin. Um, but we also see throughout the New Testament that true faith always comes with repentance. When we truly believe in the Savior, we acknowledge and hate our sins. Uh, it, if that doesn't work that way, then why do we need a Savior? What is Jesus saving us from if not from our sin? So true faith, when it comes, always comes with an acknowledgement that we're in the wrong, God's in the right, he is the one. We're, we're laying hold of a Savior who forgives our sin. And the forgiveness that we have by faith and repentance seems to be pictured here in the waters of baptism. So John's baptism dealt with repentance. People would hear of their sin as he preached, they'd acknowledge it, they'd confess it, then they would be baptized. And in our passage, we see that people were coming from all over Judea and even from Jerusalem. 
You know, people were coming from the elite city of Jerusalem to the wilderness to hear John preach repentance. You know, imagine the equivalent here, people coming in suits and ties from a big city and going out to the sticks to hear somebody call them sinners. Now, that would be strange today, maybe, uh, and it caused quite a stir then. This whole ordeal that we're reading about here is something of a spectacle, but more than that, it was something of a revival. God was doing a work through the ministry of John the Baptist that was preparing the way for our Lord. And we shouldn't think that this passage has nothing to do with us, as if this is a nice story in the Bible that we can read and go on unchanged. This is just as true for people today. All people everywhere need to repent. The word for repentance in Greek is metanoia, and it literally means to change one's mind. We need, human beings everywhere need, a change of heart, a change of mind. We need a radical reorientation from our natural inclinations. We need to be changed. We need to become a, a new creation. Something needs to change. And that can only come by the Holy Spirit working in us. Sinners need a change. We need a change that only God can truly bring. The Muslim, trying to keep Allah's commands, can never succeed in giving himself a new heart. If we simply approach the commands of even the Bible and just try to keep them in our own power, we can't give ourselves new hearts. It has to be worked by the Holy Spirit in us. We can't do it. We're called to acknowledge our sin and turn from them, turn to the Savior. Now this is true for us. For every single person who has come to faith in Jesus has deserted our own abilities and laid a hold of the Savior. That's true for every one of us. We have come to true saving faith in Him. But I don't think we should think about repentance as a one-and-done deal. As if repentance is what you do at the beginning of your Christian life, uh, and then, then there's no repentance needed after that. Repentance is an ongoing reality for the Christian. We should live the Christian life praying, even as we sing with the hymn writer, Search me, O God, and know my heart today. Try me, O Savior, and know my thoughts, I pray. See if there be some wicked way of me, in me. Cleanse me from every sin and set me free. We sing that not just remembering back then when we were saved. Uh, we, we pray those kinds of prayers to God even today. God, search my heart. Search my life. Is there something in me that is displeasing to you? And we mean it when we pray it. And when God reveals sin that's there, we respond rightly. We acknowledge it. We, we confess that. Uh, we turn from it. If we've damaged somebody through that sin, we go and we try to make peace with them. So we don't want to forget John's message of repentance. It has something to do with us as well. Uh, but we can also learn from Mark's ministry uh, as we think about how we share the message. God has entrusted us with 
the gospel and John's ministry should inform us as we think about our ministries and how we are to honor the Lord with our lives. One thing that we can learn from that is that like John, we must stand for righteousness in our day. You know, we might look antiquated in our day related to our beliefs regarding sexual morality, for instance. People might look at the lives we lead and the things that we believe are right and wrong, and they might think that we just crawled out of the Old Testament ourselves. Are you okay with that? Are you okay if somebody says, hey, bro, it's 2021, get with the program, and not doing that? (laughs) Is that okay? I hope it is. John wasn't terribly concerned about it. I think we can follow his example. We don't have to be terribly concerned about it. It's okay to stick out for Christ. We can't forget, in fact, that it was John's understanding of marriage that got him killed. We don't want to go soft and fuzzy where the Bible is firm and clear. We don't want to soft-pedal God's word simply because it's unpopular in our day. We want to stand faithful to God in the day that he has put us. Mark Matthews was saying a few weeks ago that this is it's a fascinating time to be alive. And, and I like that kind of thinking. You know, sometimes we can almost think, woe is me that I live today. We don't want to think that way. God has put us here. We live today in this world, in this society, in this part of this society, according to God's good purposes for us. And he's at work. He hasn't fallen asleep at the switch. He's got a plan. He's working it out. And we get to be here. We get to see what he's doing. We want to be faithful. I think as well we can learn from John as we see his ministry here. Uh, You know, as we think about sharing the gospel, one of the things that, that often trips me up is I think, that person probably doesn't want to repent. I mean, that's a silly thought, and to say it out loud is a little embarrassing. But sometimes that keeps me. I think, oh, they don't, they don't really want to repent. Uh, you know, here's a news alert for all of us. No generation ever has wanted to repent. It doesn't come natural. We are just as dependent on the Holy Spirit today as John was in his ministry. It's not that people were more righteous back then. Uh, God is still working today by his spirit. You know, it can be discouraging. You know, Steve, you were bringing out watching the news. You know, you can get discouraged. You look down. Uh, The reality is, if you watch the news, there are some really discouraging things. It's unbelievable the way that sin can play out. Uh, It's it's dismal. And we can get discouraged by that and think, I'm not going to go out and talk about Jesus. Uh... The picture is just too bleak. It's not even worth doing. But I think we need to not make Satan happy twice. I think that's what we do when we respond in that way. We make him doubly happy. You know, Satan is happy to see that when he encourages sin, people respond to it. I think he's even happier to see when Christians decide they're not going to talk about Jesus because of other people's sin. That shouldn't inhibit us. 
John went out and preached, and he was faithful in the message that God gave him. He had a particular calling at a particular time, and he was faithful to that. And God blessed that. He has given us a particular stewardship of the gospel in our day. We want to be faithful. It might be painful, but it's worth it. I was reminded recently that there isn't a single thing that we can take out of this world. Uh, the brother was pointing to King Tut's tomb, that they, they open it up and there's gold in there. But, you know, he didn't take it with him. That gold was still there and probably pilfered. And uh, you, We can't take anything out of this world, but we can take souls. We can invite people to come along with us and seek the Savior. And, and John was faithful in the message that was given to him. Uh, so we see that first, his message was a message of repentance. And that was a real part of the preparation of the way of the Lord. If you look in Matthew's gospel, uh, John preaches, he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. When Jesus begins preaching, he says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, John's message is, is tilling up the soil. He's getting things ready. And uh, he pointed to Jesus in more ways than that. Uh, he prepared in more ways than that. We see here that he is uh, he's pointing to Jesus as he's about to come on the scenes here. So we've seen that already in Malachi 3, Isaiah 4, that John is preparing the way for the Lord. We see that then as well at the end of our passage here in, in verses 7 and 8. Read that again. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist understood that he was just the pre-show. As a prophet... Uh, God must have revealed to him that another one was coming, and that one would excel him. Jesus was, or excuse me, John was aware that the next one would be the big deal. It'd be the big one. He knew that he wasn't the, the big show here. Uh, John uh, uses an image here to describe that, that that's a, maybe a little strange to us. Yeah. The, the one who was coming after John was so great that John wasn't worthy to even untie his shoes. You know, he says the sandals here. wasn't isn't worthy for that. Now, in our society, that, that strikes us as a little strange. What's John getting at here? Um, you know, in, in our society, uh, we teach children to tie their own shoes. Uh, you know, we see it as an achievement as a parent when our kid learns how to tie his shoes. And it's a relief to the parent when we can do that. You know, I, I remember, in fact, when I finally got it down. You know, it was a good day in 10th grade, right? And uh, I think it was before that. But, uh, you know, today, as we think about shoes, we tie our own shoes. Uh, we, that, that, that's just a mark of, uh, of maturing in life. Uh, you know, we, we do that until it comes to the point that maybe we need some extra help. Uh, and, and then the gift of Velcro comes back. Uh, so this, this image is a little strange to us. Uh, 
we might not immediately connect with what John is saying. But I think this is where it helps to get some background. Uh, tying sandals and untying them was a job for slaves and for servants. Now, if you did this task for somebody, it meant that you had a low status in society and in the world. If you were doing this job for somebody, it said something about your position. Now, John had people flocking from all over to come out and hear him. You know, John was becoming something of a celebrity in his own right. In fact, I read that the, the famous historian, you may have heard of the name Josephus, he was a Jewish historian who lived at, around the time of Jesus and in the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, he actually wrote more about John the Baptist than he wrote about Jesus. He referred to both, but he makes more mention of John the Baptist. Uh, John was a big deal in his own right. But he knows, and he knew, that he was just a warm-up act. Uh, he was just getting the crowd ready for the main show. And that the one to come would be so great and so glorious that tying or untying his shoes would be beyond his pay grade. John understands that it would be too honorable of a thing for him to even be able to untie these shoes and take them off of this one because he would be so great. That's how great this one would be. That's how great Jesus is. And I think John spoke better even than he knew. John the Baptist got a glimpse of it. But he spoke even better than he knew. Because our Lord Jesus is so great that one day every single knee will bow to him. Philippians 2, 9-11 through 11 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So how worthy is this Jesus? Just how worthy is he? Well, we get another glimpse. This is a different John. This is John, the beloved disciple. If you want to follow along, you can turn with me to the end of your Bible. Revelation chapter 5. John, the apostle here, has been given a revelation from the Lord. And here we see just how worthy. We get a glimpse of just how worthy he is. Revelation chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain 
with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The Lamb is worthy. Jesus, this one who John is pointing to, is worthy. Heaven is erupting with praises of this Jesus. And yet he comes so humbly. He takes on the form of a servant, Paul will say in Philippians 2. Humbles himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. One so glorious, deserving of our eternal praises, comes and he humbles himself. He makes himself nothing. He who created this planet, who sustains this planet, makes himself nothing for our good, for the good of our souls. Apart from this one, apart from the lamb who was slain, we would be damned. We might say sorry, but we'd have no means of repentance. We'd have no access to forgiveness apart from this lamb coming. The lion of Judah coming as the lamb and offering himself for us. Because of that, we're forgiven when we come and confess our sins. This message of repentance by John doesn't ring hollow because this one is coming. He's far greater than John. He's far greater than anybody really gets in the Gospel of Mark. But Mark is here a servant for us. He's pointing us to this one. He's telling us who Jesus is. We don't even know yet. We haven't even yet seen the glory and the worth of this Jesus. The promise for those who belong to God in Christ is that we will. It's our certain hope that we will see the Lord. Beyond this life and our troubles here, we will see Jesus. We will see his glory and we will be transformed by it. The last thing that John says here is that he's baptized them with water, but that this one is going to baptize them with the Holy Spirit. 
John understood that the waters of his baptism were going to dry off. People were going to dry out again. And I don't think he was so naive as to think that they wouldn't sin again. I think he understood that people would continue to struggle with sin, even after repenting here. But there would be one who's coming who would baptize not merely with water. That he would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And with the coming of the Holy Spirit that we see, the, the promise given in Acts chapter 2, there's a new power. There's a new conviction. There's even a new heart. Our struggle with sin is not hopeless. Uh, maybe you've come face to face with your sin and you wonder how you can beat it. How can I trust God? I'm so full of fear every time I turn around. I don't even know if it's possible to trust God. Maybe it's anger. I, I blow up again and again and again. I don't know how to get over that. How do I stop that? One of Satan's lies is you can't. You're just going to be a fretful, worrying person all the time over anything for the rest of your life. There's no help. You've got no hope. Just, just live with it. Or you're just going to be an angry person. Your dad taught you how to be angry. Now you're going to be angry and you can't help it. Satan comes to us and he lies to us all the time and we just listen to him. We hear him gladly sometimes. Maybe that's an excuse for us. The New Testament tells us in Christ, when the Holy Spirit lives in us, we are dead to sin. We do not have to obey sin. There is a new power in the Christian. The Lord Jesus Christ has baptized you with the Holy Spirit. If you are believing in him, then you are filled with the Spirit. There's a new power at work in you. You can say no to sin. You can increase in your obedience. You can grow in that. By his power. This is something that the Old Testament saints didn't get. Uh, not like we have. We've been studying Numbers on Wednesday night. And I, I just keep coming back to this. Moses says in Numbers 11.29, Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Man, Moses didn't have any idea of what God was going to do. It is incredible. We so often take for granted that God has put his Holy Spirit in us. That is such a gift. And the Lord has done that. It's true of every one of us who trust in Jesus that the Spirit is in us. We see that uh, this Jesus that John pointed forward to, he would be far greater than John. Mark includes this story about John to help Use John to point us to the Lord Jesus. And we're going to continue to see that. Uh, John didn't count himself as worthy to untie Jesus' shoes. We're going to get to see next week uh, an incredible honor that the Lord gave to John the Baptist. And we'll pick that up then. Uh, we're going to be having a, a fellowship dinner following our service here. So we will not be taking communion today. Um, we will pick that up next week. Let's pray.